0: Good morning. morning. Let's go ahead and uh, begin with prayer this morning. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the opportunity to come and study and join. And we ask for your blessings upon those that are tuning in uh, around the circle and that you will continue to advance your message and your cause at this uh, time in in earth history that you can come soon and we will be with you. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Uh, Happy Mother's Day to all the mothers uh, for tomorrow, Mother's Day weekend. And, I uh, wanted to, uh, wish you the best. And uh, no- another announcement is we will be taking questions on our Facebook uh, feed. If you are watching there, you can send them in during class today. And we're excited to announce that we finally have the physical copy of the Remedy the Lord, uh, of the Lord in Song, the Psalms. You know that, uh, it's already available at no cost, uh, digitally on our Um, Come and Reason homepage if you want to find the Psalms there you can get it we are still in the process of having the Remedy app updated the the technician is rewriting the entire app and when that is updated and comes out the uh, Psalms will be part of that at no cost as well Uh, but the uh, Remedy uh, Psalms Hard copy. We designed it purposely to be a sharing book, a gift book. If you open the inside, it's a hard cover, and in you open the inside, you can give this to somebody too from you with a date, a nice inscription there. The cover is uh, beautifully done. Dean uh, Scott uh, did the uh, the artistic and layout and design work—not layout work, the design work. Mira Huber did the editing and layout work, and inside there are. are Beautiful pictures woven through the the book to help you enjoy the Psalms as you go through. So it came out very lovely. We are um, eager for you to be able to share that with friends. And uh, if you would like to know more about how to obtain some, you can go to our website, ComeAndReason.com. Our class today, a lesson today, is. Uh, Lesson 8, Creation, Genesis as Foundation, Part 1, in the study guide, How to Interpret Scripture. And I like this title, Genesis as Foundation, because as the lesson points out, our entire understanding of reality is outlined in Genesis. You know, there are facts, and there are interpretations of facts. The biases, assumptions, presuppositions, beliefs that we hold impact how we take facts and interpret them to form conclusions and perspectives. The healthiest approach is, to the best of our ability, ensure that the beliefs, biases, premises, assumptions that we hold are in harmony with how reality actually works with the evidence and Uh, We don't deny facts and evidences just to hold to a premise or an assumption. Genesis lays out foundational basis for many beliefs that help us form frameworks for understanding reality. And here are some of those foundational beliefs. God is real, and God is a triune being of love. These are all laid out in Genesis. God is the creator. The earth and all life upon it were created by God. Human beings were created by God in God's image. God's laws are design laws, the protocols upon which reality is built. Sin is deviation from God's design, which brings suffering and death, and has its basis in lies, which undermine trust and love. Sin did not and does not Come from God, death because of sin does not come from God. The Sabbath as an aid to assist human beings in cooperating with is, is an aid um, to assist human beings in cooperating with God for holiness. God's plan to heal and to save is outlined in Genesis the worldwide flood the nature of humankind is mortal. Marriage and family. All of these understandings of how reality work have their foundation in Genesis. That's why Genesis is such an important book. As we undermine our belief in any of these foundational principles or beliefs, then we begin to corrupt our understanding of how reality works. And this happens in a variety of ways. Here's some of the ways these beliefs get undermined and then our understanding of reality begins to be corrupted. There is no God. We evolved from slime or some other primordial soup. There is a God, but his law is imperial. It's a system of rules he makes up, and it's breaking those rules, and therefore that God must use his power to inflict death upon lawbreakers. God here, God uses death to create something called theistic evolution. The Sabbath is a concept, not a day. Or, the Sabbath is strictly Jewish. Or, the Sabbath is the seventh day, but it's an arbitrary test of obedience that God will punish you for if you don't obey. These are all corruptions of reality. And if we believe any of these, then our understanding of reality gets corroded. Here's more. Human beings have have immortality and can never die. They might change forms, but they still they still live in some form. Marriage is an artificial construct made up by males to dominate society and have control over women. Women were created to be subordinate to men or women were created equal but God decided after sin that they should be subordinate to men. These are corrosive. There was no worldwide flood. Sin is a made-up concept by religions which are also made up by people to control people. God's plan of salvation is is to do something to God to pay for our sins so God won't either torture us or kill us. Genesis is just a book of myths. All of these ideas about Genesis, if you believe any of them, diminish your capacity for actually understanding reality. These are just some of the examples of how the foundational ideas can be corrupted. We achieve ever-increasingly accurate understandings of reality when we use the integrative evidence-based approach requiring our understanding of the scriptures to harmonize with nature and with real life experiences. Sunday's lesson, Genesis 1, in the beginning, the creation story, when we consider the origins of life, There are really only two options, philosophically taught in the world. Oh, there's differences in details, but the grand themes, there's two grand themes. And one is an intelligent designer created life. The other is it came about on its own without any intelligent input at all. Spontaneous evolution on its own or origins of life on its own. If we use the scientific method, which, which then we would want to do an experiment in which we observe... Outcomes that are reproducible and, re- and repetitive with the same outcomes over time. It doesn't apply. We can't go back to the origins of the universe and observe it. So we can't do an experiment directly to determine intelligent design or boom, bang, out of nothing, everything came. So we're left to test the premises that the two grand worldviews rest upon. And those are very testable. Godless origins versus God-created origins. Godless origins premise, there was nothing. And from that nothing, something came. Something came from nothing. That's testable. Can anyone show me that premise working in any capacity anywhere? The God-created one, there was something. And from that something came something else. That actually is proven every day around us. How about this one? Order and complexity came out of chaos and disorder all on its own without any intelligent input. That's very testable. And if you put it in a lab, if you test that, if you experiment over and over again, the same outcomes happen. It never happens. Conversely, order and complexity came out of disorder and complexity by an intelligent being bringing order and complexity. That's extremely testable. We do that every day of our lives. Life came from non-living matter. That's the Big Bang, the godless origins. Somebody show me that. I'd love to see that. Just all on its own, no human involvement, no intelligent involvement, just boom. Inorganic material becomes living. Or life came from other living organisms. We see that all the time. DNA gains information through mutation or DNA degrades through mutation. Both are very testable, and have been proven now. Now, if you notice these premises, this is not a mixed bag. Oh, some of the premises are true in the one theory, and some of the premises are true in the other theory. It's not that way. 100% of them are true for the creation intelligent model, and 100% of them are false for the godless model. Further... Living organisms require three elements to actually exist, and those are physical matter, the atoms and molecules that make up the the organism, energy, in the biblical worldview you call that life energy, but if you're dealing with somebody who doesn't, uh, the the breath of life from God, that's the energy, the breath of life, but if you're dealing with somebody who doesn't believe in God, then you can just point them to the energy that comes from the molecular um, actions that uh, produce energy, like the breakdowns of sugars and so forth, but it still requires energy. And the third is the coded information contained in our DNA. The godless theories of origins postulates and focuses exclusively on their experiments on how physical matter might have come about after the Big Bang. There was some primordial soup with these different uh, elements in it, and then there was electrical sparks, and they somehow sparked together to form amino acids, and over the eons of time, they formed DNA molecules, and this is what they. This is the the tripe that they put out to our children, that somehow this actually is reasonable. From my book, The Aging Brain, Proven Steps to Prevent Dementia, and Sharpen Your Mind, I'm going to share a little section. The idea that living beings originated in their own, on their own, without any intelligent input, would be similar to believing that a storm arose with high winds, rain, and lightning that raged for years, and during this storm, a strong winds blew rocks and sands at high speed until... Some were shattered and worn down to form the letters of the alphabet. This is analogous to believing that random forces of nature in some chemical soup with lightning strikes eventually form DNA molecules. But even if we accept that this happened, which is a big leap of blind, evidenceless faith, get your mind around that. The whole premise of Godless Origins is built on blind, Evidenceness evidenceless faith in other, that refute that actually goes against the scientific evidence scientists still ignore the most critical aspect of what is required for life the encoded information contained in the organized DNA sequences having an alphabet does not mean we have usable and functional information to believe that random forces brought life. About would require we not only believe the alphabet formed all on its own, but beyond this, we must also believe that the winds, rains, and lightning strikes all on its own organize the letters into the entire Encyclopedia Britannica. Yet, this is exactly what millions of good hearted, honest thinking people do believe. I go on to ask the question but why would thinking, honest of heart scientists choose to believe something that the evidence refutes? Because the historical alternative belief system is significantly more destructive. And what is the historical alternative belief system from which this godless theory arose? The belief in an all-powerful God who functions no differently than the worst despots in human history, a God who says, love me, I'll burn you in hell forever. This grotesque God construct, rightly rejected by reasonable people, is pointedly described by Richard Dawkins in his book, The God Delusion. And this is what they reject, and it leaves them with this other. This is what he says. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving, control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalo- megalomaniacal, sadomasticistic, capriciously malevolent bully. No, if that's how you see God, which is the God that is taught in imperial systems, an authoritative bully, if do it my way, or I'm going to torture and kill you. If that's your worldview, then you see that believing in no God is actually better. So in my view, the reason good-hearted people reject God and the Genesis account is because they have only been given two options. And both of them are lies. God as a big bully... An authoritarian dictator, who's the source of pain and suffering, or no God? This is why the three angels' message is so important. The three angels' revelation, because at this time in human history, God is calling for a people to stand up and call people back to worship the Creator, Him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all that in them is. Uh, it, it calls people back to worship the Designer and His laws as design protocols. It calls people away from the imperial dictator views of God to embrace the creator God. Which means we have to stop teaching this penal legal theologies and start teaching the reality that we're sick and God wants to heal us. So which worldview is more reasonable? The view of our creator God of love who built reality to operate on design laws of truth, love, freedom, and other design laws. Second paragraph states, Darwinian evolution is contrary to Scripture in every way, and attempts to uh, by some, and attempts by some to harmonize it with the Bible makes Christian, Christians look silly. Darwinian evolution is the concept that a species evolves over millions of years by mutation of the DNA, which confers new and improved abilities, allowing them to compete more effectively uh, in an environment. And reproduce over those who are less capable now, and thus naturally over time, the less capable are selected out and don't pass their genetic information along, and the species is advanced over time. A couple of points to understand: Darwinian evolutionary theories does not address do not address origin science. Evolu- when you use evolution? That's things adapting and changing over time. You first have to have life in order for it to evolve. So Darwinian evolutionary theories just begins describing what's happening now. It does not deal with how life began in the first place. So don't confuse evolution, and people say evolution, with origins. They're they're actually different concepts. There has never been any scientific evidence given of one species mutating into another species. transmute transmute Never, It's never been demonstrated. This theory is still taught, but it's taught without evidence. In fact, it's taught in the face of contradicting evidence. Evolution, the process of a species changing or evolving based on environmental pressures, d- does occur. Uh, because God created us in his image, with the capacity to adapt and change and then have beings in our image, so as we change ourselves, then our children are going to be more like how we have become, so we have the capacity to adapt and change. That's evolution. Natural selection is the process of the least fit, being less capable of competing for resources and thus dying out of a population and no longer passing their genetic material along. They're naturally selected out and traits are lost. Or you could put it the other way, more more uh, adaptive traits are retained. But selecting out the least capable in a population, or another way to say it, the most damaged is not the same as saying those who survive are advancing and improving improving the idea of natural selection takes the observation that the least fit don't survive and draws a false conclusion a lie in fact that the that and, and that is the core to the entire evolutionary theory this lie it's all built on a lie not not uh, natural selection that occurs that's not the lie. The lie is, since the least fit don't survive, then the more fit that survive in the population is actually advancing from the generation before. This is not so. In fact, all members of every generation of a population is genetically downgraded or degraded or damaged when compared to the generation before it. With every human generation, they've looked at this now with, with DNA science and genetic science, there's a minimum of a thousand new damaging gene mutations in our DNA that the generation before us didn't have. I have a thousand more than my parents, two thousand more than my great-grandparent, par- my grandparents, three thousand more than my great-grandparents, and so forth. With every generation, a species loses genetic vitality. It doesn't gain it. Now, within my generation, if some uh, mutations are so bad that those people can't reproduce, then they don't adapt well, they are not retained in society, that's natural selection, they're selected out, so those really bad ones are lost from the next generation, but that's not saying my genes got better, my genes still got worse, the whole species is still degrading. Evolutionary theory is essentially only two truths. Things adapt and change over time, and natural selection selects out the least fit. All the other so-called points of evolution are proven false. There's, and here's, here's some of the points they claim, that, but they're just proven. It's not just theoretically, proven false. Species advance via mutation of the DNA code. False. Every gene mutation that has ever been identified thus far diminishes DNA vitality, damages the DNA code, Takes away information, does not add vitality. Species evolve from one to another through mutation. This has never been demonstrated. It's not true. Darwin's original theory, represented by his observation of the different types of beaks that finches have. Some have beaks that are short for grubs. Some have beaks that are long for getting into little wood spaces for insects, and and the different the different shapes of the beaks. He he hypothesized, was adaptation over millions of years that allowed them to compete better in different environments that they tend to, to habit uh, for their habitat. But this has been tested now with DNA science. They actually took the different finches and they looked at their DNA sequences, and guess what? They have the same DNA sequences. No mutations occurred. What they discovered, in fact, was that within one to two generations of environmental pressure change, like needing to get grubs instead of needing to uh, peck somewhere else, epigenetic modifications, these signals, little molecules that sit above the DNA telling the DNA how to express itself, modify the shape of the next generation in the beaks. And this happened in one to two generations. I've got the scientific references in the notes for those who'd like to go check those resources. Which is exactly what the Bible teaches, that we change ourselves. And we pass those changes down three and four generations. Now what's interesting, Ellen White, one of the founders of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, and a contemporary of Charles Darwin, living at the same time Darwin lived, had a different view of these things than Darwin. Rather than millions of years, she took the approach that things that we change ourselves in real time, and those changes pass down through the generations to our children. This would be consistent with epigenetic modification, which we now know is true, but she didn't even know anything about gene science. But somehow she was able to get this right. And i want to give you a couple of quotes which were quite profound, thinking that these were written in the 19th century. This is out of uh, first volume, Mind Character Personality 136. Parents, by indulgence, have strengthened their animal passions. And as these have strengthened, the moral and intellectual faculties have become weak. The spiritual has been overborne by the brutish. Children are born with the animalistic propensities largely developed. The parents' own stamp of character have been given to them. The brain force is weakened. The memory becomes deficient. The sins of the parents will be visited upon the children because the parents have given them the stamp of their own lustful propensities. Um this would be if you engage in doing alcohol, drugs, and things in your adolescence and you don't get into recovery, you don't you will pass along greater risks of addiction problems to your kids. It's well known science now. This is not mutating your GNA code, you're epigenetically altering how it's developed, which will alter how the child's brain developed, which alters the actual propensities in the child. This is strong neuroscience and genetic science now. How did she know that? Here's another one. This is out of Mind Character Personality, page 139. The nobler aims, the higher the mental and spiritual endowments, and the better developed the physical powers of the parents, the better will be the life equipment they give their children. In cultivating that which is best in themselves, parents are exerting an influence to mold society and to uplift future generations. So it goes both directions. We do unhealthy things, we pass it along. We do mature and healthy things, we pass advantages along to our kids. Epigenetic science shows this as well. No DNA sequencing, though. And then these two are are, are quite interesting, and I'm going to show you some actual science that that confirm these. Mind Character Personality 131. Every woman about to become a mother, whatever may be her surroundings, should encourage constantly a happy, cheerful, contented disposition, knowing that for all her efforts in this direction, she will be repulled, repaid tenfold in the physical as well as the moral character of her offspring. And then the next quote is um, Mind Character Personality, Volume 1, page 132. The thoughts and feelings of the mother will have a powerful influence upon the legacy she gives her child. If she allows her mind to dwell upon her own feelings, if she indulges in selfishness, if she is peevish and exacting in disposition, uh, uh, peevish and exacting, the disposition of her child will testify to the fact. Thus many have received as a birthright almost unconquerable tendencies to evil. Okay? Okay. Now, what's the brain science show? A study of 4,000 mothers and their children followed for 18 years found that mothers with negative, pessimistic, depressogenic thinking patterns when pregnant increased the risk of their child having depression 18 years later. This association remained after accounting for other maternal child variables that could be linked. Uh, in fact, the, the, the data concluded that such depressogenic thinking increased the risk of depression in the child by 21%. And then uh, studies show that mothers who are highly stressed during pregnancy, and this could be from negative, worried, anxious, pessimistic thinking, but it doesn't have to be. It could be a mother who's got generally mature thinking, but she goes through a trauma during pregnancy. Her husband gets killed in a car accident. Her husband gets deployed into a war zone. Her mother gets diagnosed with cancer. Something traumatic happens during pregnancy. But if that happens and she doesn't handle that Uh, very quickly to resolve her stress. If she stays in a highly stressed state, then her stress hormones elevate and those stress hormones cross the placental barrier. They cross the developing blood-brain barrier and through epigenetic modification alter the developing brain so the child is born with a brain that is less capable of turning off its fear circuitry so the child is born more anxious, more fearful, um, less socially capable than the child would have been had the mother not been highly stressed during pregnancy. So, neuroscience and genetic science are confirming what Ellen White wrote about, which is the biblical worldview, and refuting what Darwin wrote about, which is the godless worldview. The lesson points out in the third paragraph that God as creator not only created physical matter, but also time, and as such, lives outside of time. This is quite important and true. God lives on a plane of existence beyond our full experience or capacity even to process and understand. Some people can't process this. They can't handle it. And believe that if God lives outside of time... And because he lives outside of time and he is basically in all points of time simultaneously past, present, and future and knows all points of time and somehow therefore knows our future choices then they conclude, well then we're not free we're just pre-programmed robots. Now because the people who have this position are sensitive to God's character of love and, and they realize that love requires freedom they with the best intentions create a lie that God doesn't know the future he has no foreknowledge or he can know he could know it he has the ability to know it but he voluntarily puts a blindfold on himself and won't look because he does because by looking he would take away our choice it's all based on false premises that somehow god's awareness of the future is either deterministic to us pre-programs us takes liberty it's quite simple really to God, who lives outside of time, what is it that informs him of our future choices? Not uh, n- Note, it's future to us. It's actually not future to God because he actually doesn't really exist in linear time like we do. It's really difficult for us to process. But what is it that informs him of the choice we're going to make next year? Our actually making the choice. If we never make the choice... That information never, that action never happens. That data never happens. That information never occurs. God's never made aware of it because it never happened. And so it's our actual choice that informs him of the choice we're going to make, which keeps us completely free and, 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 and at liberty. Another point to make about Genesis 1-1 is simply that when it uses the language, in the beginning, God created... It is not speaking of the beginning of all things. It's speaking of the beginning of this planet and this solar system. And we know this because in Job chapter 38, verse 7, it informs us that the angels sang together for joy when the foundations of the earth were laid. They couldn't be singing for joy when earth was created if they weren't already created beforehand. So, the... The, uh, the narrative of Genesis 1 is the narrative of God at some time in the past coming to this portion of the Milky Way to create planet Earth and our solar system, the sun, moon, and stars of our solar, Venus, Mercury, Mars, and so forth. Not the whole universe. And when you understand that, then you can have harmony um, with the fact that the universe may in fact be billions of years old while life on Earth was created much uh, more relatively close thousands of years ago. Monday's lesson, the lesson points out that Genesis teaches that the Earth was created during a seven-day week, in which each day was 24 hours long. It rejects the idea that some suggest um, that Genesis is a metaphorical book, and the days represent long eons of time in which life slowly evolves, slowly evolved on Earth. Or that God used evolutionary methods of long periods of time to create on Earth. Now, The idea is really trying to understand, did the author intend eons of time? Is it intended to be a metaphorical book? Or did the author, whether you believe it or not, did the author believe these are 24-hour days? Did he write 24-hour days? And it's very clear he wrote 24-hour days. And and rather than arguing the word in the original Hebrew and how it's used other places, which is all consistent with and still supports the idea of a 24-hour day, The most compelling argument for me is the creation sequence itself, how the author wrote it, it, then you'll know what he intended. And what he wrote wrote was that plant life was created on Earth on day three of creation week, but the sun was not created until day four of creation week. So if this was long eons of time, how in the world was plant life living on Earth before the sun was created? The plant life that we understand can't live. So this plant life didn't happen, eons of, of thousands of years before the sun came into being. So it's very clear the author, God created plants, and the next day he created the sun to sustain them. So it's a 24-hour period. The other d- problem with the evolutionary idea that God used evolutionary principles um, to create suggests would suggest, though, and makes it irrational for Christianity... And it's part of Satan's big lie because it merges the, uh, the idea that God uses death to bring forth life. Because evolutionary advancement requires the killing off of the less capable in order for the, uh, the survivors to advance. And uh, to create this uh, evolutionary worldview then uh, creates the kingdom in which Satan wants to exist, where there's good and evil existing. This philosophy is known as dualism where life and death coexist, and uh, where good and evil are required in order for life to exist. This is a foundational philosophical principle for essentially all Eastern religions, and it's foundational for theistic evolution. The idea that life and death are both part of God's character, and God's kingdom is a lie. It is Satan's goal for there to be an eternal existence of good and evil so he can exist for eternally. The Bible teaches that God, in God there is only light and there is no darkness in him whatsoever. He is not the source of sin, he is not the source of suffering, he is not the source of pain, and he is certainly not the source of death. So when you identify dualism in which... Some theory teaches that in God we find both light and darkness. We find both good and evil. We find both life and death. You can understand that some way Satan has succeeded in introducing a lie into the theory. It's not a godly theory. It's not a Bible theory. And how how has that now entered Christian thought? It's entered Christian thought through the imperial law lie which now teaches that God, in order to be just, must use his power to either torture or kill sinners. Thus, God is the source of life, but God, under the guise of justice, is now also the source of death, life and death, originating in God. This is dualism, and it needs to be rejected. Death comes out from severing our connection from God, from deviating from God's design, from being alienated from God. That results in death. Death does not come from God. He's the source of life. Tuesday's lesson. Tuesday's lesson is about the Sabbath. Now, it's interesting that if you look at our measures of time, the day of the week, the months, the years, all of these measures of our time are predicated on the movements of planetary or celestial bodies. The earth rotating on its axis around the sun or the moon circling around the earth. So we have a Astronomical marker for days, months, and years. What's the astronomical marker for the seven-day weekly cycle? And this is a great question to ask those who don't believe in God, don't believe in the Genesis account. Why is it that essentially every society ever to live on the planet Earth has had a seven-day weekly cycle? Societies that don't trace their origins back to the Judeo-Christian Bible. They still have a seven-day weekly cycle. How is that possible? And this gives strong um, anthropological and historical evidence to the Genesis account. But what's the significance of the Sabbath? It's all about context. When it came into being and what its purpose in being created was. Remember, the Sabbath was Created, Jesus said the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Therefore, the Son of Man is Lord also of the Sabbath. See, the Sabbath serves Jesus. Jesus does not serve the Sabbath. Get your mind around that. Many people think, well, it's the law, you're bound by it. Oh, No, no, the Sabbath is a tool created by Jesus to accomplish an outcome. What's its purpose in creating the Sabbath? When Jesus said the Sabbath was made for man, he was speaking to the Jewish people, which makes it clear the Sabbath was not made for the Jews. It was made for the human race. But for what purpose? What was happening in the universe when planet Earth was terraformed, when God created Adam, Eve, and the Sabbath? There was a war going on. Rebellion had begun in heaven. Satan was alleging God wasn't rightful ruler. The first six days of creation week, God creates the lesson book. We are a theater, a lesson to angel to men, First Corinthians 4.9. He begins building right into reality how his law works. Design law, the principle of love, the principle of other-centeredness. This whole planet is teeming with life, all designed to serve others in the sustaining of its own life. This is God's design built right into nature. And after giving the evidence, day one through six, we see God as powerful. But day seven, we see the character of the one who wields it. God rests or stops exercising power. Think about how every human government works and what almost every person will say, what's the just thing? If a, if a uh, constituency begins to rebel against its rightful king, what would they say is the right action for the king to take, but to use power to put down the rebellion? God did not use power to put down the rebellion. God's kingdom is not of this world. The Sabbath reveals the methods of God. Truth presented in love, leaving people free. And the one with all power restrains the use of his power. The Sabbath reveals the character of God. It's given to us as a tool so we can understand his methods and principles. You see, if Satan were actually correct and God was a power monger, God was authoritarian, God was imperialistic, God made up rules and enforced them, there would be no weekly Sabbath. God would have simply said, Lucifer, here's the way it is, here are the rules, I'm going to give you a chance, you get in line or else. That's not what God did. In the book of Exodus, it tells us that the Sabbath is a sign that God makes us holy. Think that. What does that mean? In the larger setting of the war between God and Satan, over God's character and government, What does the Sabbath reveal? Well, it reveals what I just said, God's character of love. That he doesn't coerce. That we're left free to choose. One of the positions that we come and reason have taken is that the Sabbath is a sign, an evidence, a flag, a pennant of God's kingdom, of his design law, of his way of ruling. Remember the Sabbath, they keep it holy. We've asked in here before, and I'll ask again. If you sin on Sabbath, have you made the Sabbath less holy? If you do righteous living on Sabbath, have you made the Sabbath more holy? Is there any action you can take that will change the holiness of the Sabbath? Either making it more holy or making it less holy? Or is its holiness a static state? It just is what it is. And you can't change it. So when it says, remember the Sabbath, to keep it holy. Are you keeping it holy or is it already holy? And you're actually keeping yourself holy. And the next question is, can you keep? Can we keep ourselves holy one day in seven? So the Sabbath was made for man as a sign, as a flag, as a pennant, as a reminder, remember, remember all week long, remember what the Sabbath stands for, remember what the Sabbath reveals, remember the kingdom of God whose flag and pennant is the Sabbath. Remember to live in harmony with the principles of God's kingdom, truth, love, freedom, don't coerce, don't dominate, don't lie, don't cheat, love others more than self all week long. So those who live in harmony with God's kingdom all week long are remembering the kingdom for which the Sabbath is a sign. And then this quote came in last week. I read it last week, but I've only, I have just got it a week ago, so I'm going to read it again. 6 Testimony 353 all, th- all through the week we are to have the Sabbath in mind and be making preparation to keep it according to the commandment. We are not merely to observe the Sabbath as a legal matter. We are to understand its spiritual bearing upon all the transactions of life. All who regard the Sabbath as a sign between them and God, showing that he is the God who sanctifies them, will represent the principles of his government. They will bring into daily practice the laws of his kingdom. Daily it will be their prayer that the sanctification of the Sabbath rest upon them. Daily sanctification of the Sabbath, all week long? Oh my goodness! Keep going. Every day they will have the companionship of Christ and will exemplify the perfection of his character. Every day their light will shine forth to others in good works. See, Sabbath keeping isn't about which day you close your business and go to sit in a pew and get a sermon preached to you. Sabbath keeping is having the law written on your heart and mind so that you live like Christ all week long. That's what true Sabbath keeping is all about. And if you want to understand then what's the division, what's the issue, what's the tension, what's the controversy between Sabbath and Sunday, it's not about the actual days themselves, it's about what the days represent. These days are signs, they're markers, they're flags, they're pennants, just like flags of nations. The U.S. has a flag that's recognized around the world, the good old stars and stripes. But that flag only represents America. That flag is not America. Those of us who are Americans love the flag. And whatever country you're in, you may love the flag of your nation. And because you love your nation and you love the flag which it represents, you don't want to disrespect the flag. You don't want to throw it on the ground and stomp on it. You don't want to burn it. You don't want to, uh, to mistreat it. So you treat it with respect because it represents the nation that you love. So too with the Sabbath. If you understand the Sabbath, it's not a thing you have to give. It's not a legal obligation. It's simply something you cherish because it represents a beautiful kingdom of truth, love, and freedom. Sunday, however, became a day of rest not by its creation. See, Sabbath came a day of rest by creation, and that's why it represents the kingdom of God's creation and the kingdom of of the design law methods and principles truth, love, and freedom. Sunday became a day of rest through legislation, by human action, passing laws through committees, and then throughout history, it was enforced legislatively with external punishments. Thus, it becomes a sign of the imperial systems of doing things, of beastly systems, of penal legal religions and punishing gods. That's what it becomes a sign of. Yes, question? Question? David, he said, okay, so that means I can open up my shop now on Saturday. And now I don't, won't feel any conscious violation of the seventh day. Is he giving testimony? Is that his heart's conviction? Sounds like he's giving testimony. If that's what his heart has convicted him to do, I certainly won't uh, tell him that he can't. So Paul says, let every person be fully persuaded in their own mind. To me, it really depends on the motive of the heart. Are you opening your shop because it happens to be in the aftermath of a tornado that happened here in Chattanooga three weeks ago, in which people were completely without—some uh, people without food, without—and you happen to live in a place that the, that there are babies going without food, and your shop happens to have baby food and other things, and you open it up on Sabbath so they can get some. It sounds very loving and gracious to me. Are you opening your shop so you can make more money? Mm-hmm. See, so it isn't about the shop; it's about what's in your heart. That's really what the deal is. So we must grow past level four development, which is all legal, rules-oriented, do's, don'ts, and we must embrace the truth of the kingdom of God and the creator God so we live out his principles in how we love others. Can you see people who worship the creator God and observe the seventh-day Sabbath but then teach it's an arbitrary test of obedience and if you don't do all these legal requirements and you'll get punished by God in the end? Yes, those people put Christ, the Lord of the Sabbath, on the cross and killed him. And they wanted him off the cross so that they could keep the day. You see, this legal approach only corrupts the character and actually takes you out of the kingdom of God and puts you into the other beastly system. C.S. Lewis, in his book, uh, The Narnia Series, uh, in his uh, Narnia Series, the last book of that series, uh, describes a Calormene soldier named Emeth and his encounter with Aslan. Emeth was a worshipper of Tash and was terrified when he came in the presence of Aslan. And this is the encounter. Uh, uh, starting with Emmeth. I fell at the feet and thought. I fell at his feet and thought. Surely this is the hour of death. For the lion will know that I have served Tash all my days and not him. But, Aslan resp- re- uh, but Aslan's response, Son, thou art welcome. But I said, Alas, Lord, I am no son of thine, but the serv- a servant of Tash. He answered, Child. All the service thou hast done to Tash, I account a service done to me. I questioned the Glorious One. Lord, is it then true that you and Tash are one? The lion growled and said, It is false, not because he and I are one, but because we are opposites. I take to me the service which thou hast done to him. For I and he are of such different kinds that no service which is vile can be done to me, and none which is not vile can be done to him. Therefore, if any man swear by Tash and keep his oath for the oath's sake, it is by me that he is truly sworn, though he know it not. And it is I who reward him. And if any man do cruelty in my name, then, though he say the name Aslan, it is Tash whom he serves, and by Tash his deed is accepted." Emeth questions, Lord, I have been seeking Tash all my days. Beloved, said the Glorious One, unless thy desire had been for me, thou should not have sought so long and so truly, for all find what they truly seek. See, it's ultimately not about the day. It's about the Lord of the day. Wednesday's lesson's about marriage. Marriage, a relationship of love as God designed in which two individuals become united as one, not one individual, one in heart, love, service, other-centeredness, sharing, common purpose, goals, methods, principles, one in heart. Marriage was designed, now get your mind around this, marriage was designed by God to give finite created beings the most godlike of abilities and experiences. It it was created with two beings of equal worth, equal value, and equal standing under God's law, but who were created with complementary abilities, not equal abilities, folks, complementary abilities that would result in expansion of love, expansion of awareness, Expansion of experience and development and achievement as the two unite in the bonds of marital love as God designed. In other words, God's design will result in greater development, experience of godliness, and achievement than either one could individually experience alone. That's profound. Without going on. If you understand the gift that God has designed for human relationships in marriage and what he wants us to experience, the most godlike of abilities and experiences of love and other-centeredness and procreation and and other things, the complementary way he made us that that we expand. I can tell you I'm more because of my wife than I was without her. She may have more headaches because of me. I'm not sure. But I know she has more of something. But we're more together. When you understand that reality, if we don't even go on to human history, if there's an enemy of God out there, what can you predict that he will want to do with marriage? He'll want to damage it in some way. He won't want us to experience those benefits. And of course, Satan hates God's design and wants to corrupt it. And after the fall, fear and selfishness replaced love and trust In the hearts, and instead of co-equals, operating in other-centered love, domination and control infected God's design. All kinds of mistreatment, abuse, exploitation, betrayal, heartache have occurred in the marriage relationship. As God's methods of truth, love, and freedom were replaced with fear and selfishness. Satan attacked God's design in other ways. He attacked it physically undermining procreative abilities with infertility and uh, other types of damages. One of our online listeners, Maria Averill, sent in a question that said, Is there any way Dr. Jennings can address Genesis 3.16, where God says, and this is the quote, Genesis 3.16, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. And she goes on in her question. If they are suffering the natural consequences to their sin, why would God feel the need to add sorrow to it? That seems out of character for him. Well said, and you're exactly right. This is a translation by people who approach the scripture with a bias that God's law works like our law, imperial rules, and therefore they read into the translation and they bring over, it's not required, it reads this way, and they bring over into the translation this authoritarian action as if God is making it happen, when in reality all God is doing is pronouncing, as a loving father would do to his children, What now is going to happen? You did this. Here now is the consequence. Here now is the diagnosis. Here now is the pronouncement of the new reality that your actions have put you in. That's what's actually happening there. And so if I were to paraphrase this particular text, here's how my paraphrase would read. Because my design of love has now been replaced with fear and selfishness, having and raising children will be very hard, filled with sorrow. It really isn't required that it's about actual labor and birth. That's how it's returned. It's really about having children and rearing children. The Hebrew can can either apply to uh, having a pregnancy and giving birth or can have about having children and rearing children. It's not precise. And then fearful, you will seek protection from your stronger husband, but he will dominate you. You see, this is what God was simply saying to him. You've changed yourself. And it's going to be hard, and you're going to have so heartache. And parents, how many parents have understood the truth? Having children in this world now is filled with pain. That's all God was saying. Over the last several decades in Western society, definition of marriage, one man and one woman, has changed to include same-sex relationships. Many Christians have been upset over this, and there's been conflict in society and churches because of it. I thought a little history on marriage might be helpful. In ancient times, marriage was a community or family event in which a male and a female committed themselves to be husband and wife. There were no governments involved, just public commitment of the two people with the family support and acknowledgement of the community. Old Testament Levitical law codified certain aspects of marriage, primarily to protect women from the uh, arbitrary discarding of their husbands and give them certain rights to protect them in society so they wouldn't be mistreated. But again, it was male and female marriage. But during Bible times, a male could have more than one female partner. They could have it was polygamous marriages. In early Christian marriage, it remained a a family and community event, not a um, governmental event. But it was changed from a polygamous to a one male, one female back more as God originally designed in Eden. As the church became organized, the Roman church recognized marriage between a man and a woman as a sacred relationship, and marriages for centuries were family events associated with their organized church and recorded in the church books. Now the following is from Wikipedia, uh, giving a little bit of this history. This is a quote. As part of the Protestant Reformation, the role of recording marriages and setting the rules for marriage passed passed to the state reflecting Martin Luther's view that marriage was a worldly thing. By the 17th century, many of the Protestant European countries had a a state involvement in marriage. As part of the Counter-Reformation in 1563, the Council of Trent decreed that the Roman Catholic marriage would be recognized only if the marriage ceremony was officiated by a priest with two witnesses. The council also authorized a catechism issued in 1566, which defined marriage as Quote, the conjugal union of man and woman contracted between two equal persons, which excuse me two qualified persons which obliges them to live together throughout life unquote. in the early modern period. John Calvin and his Protestant colleagues reformulated Christian marriage by enacting the marriage ordinance of Geneva, which imposed. Quote, the dual requirement of state registration and church consecration to constitute marriage, unquote. So prior to the Protestant Reformation, the state governments had no role in marriage. It was the Protestant Reformation which wanted a means to record marriages free of their members going back to the Roman church to have it recorded, that they solicited the involvement of the state and they began having state registration required. Over the course of various time other legal elements came in, such as tax benefits, inheritance benefits, nets of kin rights, and so forth. Do we find any problems have arisen because of merging church and state in this way? Christians, Protestant Christians, invited the state into the marriage institution. And now the state has redefined it. And many Christians are unhappy about this. Should this be another lesson about merging church and state. But here are some questions in regard to marriage. Is there a difference between what you choose to do in your personal life and what one should seek from their government in regard to marriage? Is there a difference between biblical marriage and marriage as sanctioned by a human government, i.e. a legal marriage? Were the reformers correct to suggest a person is not married in God's eyes until he gets a legal marriage by the state? Can someone get married by the state and not be married in God's eyes? Should the church seek to get the state to enforce the church's view of marriage? I'm going to say that one again. Should the church seek to get the state to enforce the church's view of marriage? If you're nodding, would you be happy if Muslims became the majority in your country and they legalized polygamy? Is there a difference in spiritual union, marriage blessed by God, and a legal union, marriage legalized by the state? Do the state, do the state and church serve the same master? Sadly, I think sometimes they do, but they're not supposed to. Do the state and church have the same agenda? Do the state and church concern themselves with the same elements of marriage? Or is church concerned with God's blessing, unity of two individuals in a holy covenant, spiritual wholeness, honoring God with one's life, revealing the truth of God's character as he designed marriage to do, family integrity, raising children in godly ways? Is that what the church is concerned with? And is the state concerned with legal contracts? Who inherits whose property? uh, Who is a legal guardian? Who makes legal health care decisions? But not who's united in heart by God. Should adults in our society be allowed to enter into legal contracts regarding the disposition of their property, guardianship, medical decision making? What if those adults are of the same sex? Can we live in peace with those who enter into such contracts even if they call it marriage? Is every marriage blessed by God regardless of whether it's a heterosexual or homosexual marriage? Can people get legally married but still not experience the marital union that God designed. How about this one? Are some marriages actually traps of Satan? So, is there a difference between church-sanctioned marriage and state-sanctioned marriage? Which system do you prefer? One in which such matters are decided by the church, like in the Middle Ages? One in which matters are decided by the state? or a mixed system in which it requires both church and state. Thursday's lesson, it talks about the tree of knowledge of good and evil. We're going to close on this. What do you understand the purpose of the tree of knowledge of good and evil to be? Have you ever considered the name of the tree? The tree of knowledge of good and evil. What do you take from that name? It's simply the tree of reality. It is the place where Adam and Eve would decide what they would know. Remember it says in John seventeen three, This is life eternal, that they might know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom sent. This tree, this knowledge of good and evil, was not theoretical knowledge. It was not cognitive knowledge. God and the angels had already informed Adam and Eve about Satan about evil, about the consequences. Adam and Eve had information. They had factual knowledge. That was not the purpose of the tree. This was about experience, about knowing by experience good or evil, by the choice to trust and believe God or to believe lies and disbelieve God and therefore break trust with him. God is telling them, at this tree, you will have knowledge. Choose well. Choose not to partake and you will know good. You will know love, trust, loyalty, devotion, maturity, integrity, joy, peace, godliness. All of this will be solidified into your character. But if you choose to partake of the fruit, you will know fear, selfishness, insecurity, guilt, shame, distrust, pain, suffering, death. You will know evil. It's about reality. What will you choose to know? God already knew evil, not in his character. But in his heart, as his heavenly home had already been fractured, he'd already suffered the heartache, the betrayal, the disaffection, the being lied about, the being misrepresented, the loss of his loved ones. He'd already suffered pain of evil. He knew the heartache. He did not want humankind to know evil, to know this pain and heartache. He wanted humankind to know only good. And this required for them to choose And in choosing, they would have, if they had chosen God, known good, solidified themselves in good, and rejected evil, but they chose evil. And so, last quote out of Conflict and Courage, page 13. God might have created man without the power to transgress his law. He might have held withheld the hand of Adam from touching the forbidden fruit. But in that case, man would have been not a free moral agent, but a mere automaton, a robot. Without freedom to choose, his obedience would not have been voluntary but forced. There could have been no development of character. It would have been unworthy of man as an intelligent being and would have sustained Satan's charges of God's arbitrary rule. See the difference in the imperial view. In the imperial view, what I just said, it doesn't even make sense to them. God has a rule. He had a law. You either do it and they didn't and now they're in legal trouble and they've got to be punished. This is not the tree of knowledge of good and evil. The tree of knowledge of good and evil is about reality and about how God wanted them to choose to know the good in their experience and solidify and mature their character and choose to reject the evil so they never know it. You have know, heard that uh, somebody has uh, lost a loved one. Maybe they're grieving and somebody comes up to them and go, I know what you're going through. That's the kind of knowledge God never wanted them to know what God was going through, the evil that he had already been suffering because of Lucifer's rebellion. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are the creator God of truth, love, freedom, and that life is found in knowing you. And we ask for your spirit of truth to fall, to bring us into ever greater intimacy that we might know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent in our heart, our mind, write your law upon our heart and mind, transform us, renew us, and deliver us that we can see you soon and we will be lights in this world to be effective in pushing back this arbitrary distortion about you that seems to have hold of so many minds. We pray in your holy name. Amen.